Isaiah 42, verse 13. The Lord goes out like a mighty man. Like a man of war, he stirs up his zeal. He cries out, he shouts aloud, he shows himself mighty against his foes. Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. The mini-series Band of Brothers follows a company of United States paratroopers through their own experience of invading Europe on D-Day. The series is based on real-life interviews of the survivors and attempts to document both the horrors of war and, and also the heroism of these remarkable troops. And like a lot of new series these days, in addition to the actual episodes, the producers also release these individual featurettes of the main characters, including one, Lieutenant Richard Winters. And in Winters' own featurette, he's cast in a variety of settings, you know, charging with his troops into battle, proudly saluting an officer that he has just promoted. And the scenes as they move quickly close with Winters leading his troops into their most celebrated victory of the war, holding the Germans at the Battle of the Bulge. And it shows a soldier leaving the front line. He pulls Winters aside and he says ominously, it looks like you guys are gonna be surrounded and without hesitation, Winters replies, we're paratroopers, Lieutenant. We're supposed to be surrounded. And in that vein, today, we are going to take a look at a part of the Christian life that is really like a, a surrounded paratrooper and that is kind of fundamental to being a Christian. Uh, something that comes with the territory. And yet it's an aspect of the Christian life that for one reason or another is either neglected or forgotten. And today we are going 
to come to God's word to look at the reality of spiritual warfare. Now I say that phrase, spiritual warfare, imagine that brings up a lot of different thoughts and feelings across the room. Some of you might be on the edge of your seat right now, channeling your inner William Wallace, ready to kind of charge a battle line somewhere, where others may be saying, you know, Pastor, I, uh, I'm a child of the 70s. I'm, I'm more of a, of a lover than I am a fighter. And others still, and I think this is probably the most of us, feel a sense of ambivalence, a, a bit detached or skeptical about the idea of spiritual warfare, right? I mean, this is like stuff for missionaries. Or, or maybe the charismatics. Let's leave this one to our charismatic brothers and sisters. We're Baptists. We don't do that type of a thing. Not to mention, just generally speaking, we live in a, a civilized, advanced society. And so this idea of cosmic warfare can, can feel a little bit detached from our own realities, a little out of date. And yet, as in all things, we want to be a church family that's submitted to the authority of God's word. So if you've, you've yet to turn there in your own Bibles, would you meet me in the book of Ephesians uh, in chapter 6? Ephesians chapter 6, which Ashley just read earlier for us, we're going to be studying today verses 10 to 20. Ephesians 6. And in verse 10, the apostle Paul begins simply with the word finally or henceforth. And understanding the book of Ephesians, what we have here is, is essentially Paul's final charge to this Ephesian church, and he could have said anything to conclude. And I just think it's so curious that he finishes with what is essentially a call to battle, what we might also call a strategic battle plan for the church. And I, and I wonder if we might take this text today just in, in three simple and straightforward parts. The first being, be strengthened to stand in battle. Be strengthened, Paul says, to stand firm in the ensuing battle. And the first couple of verses, verses 10 to 11, really set the trajectory for this entire text. Look at it again with me. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And there are a couple of phrases in here that are really important for us to wrap our arms around because Paul could have just said, be strong, full stop. Take courage, just do it, hero up, period, end of story. But he doesn't. Instead, he, he carefully qualifies the source of the believer's strength. Be strong in the Lord. And, and if we use the context of this book, we actually can understand exactly what Paul is trying to say when he says that, because that phrase, in the Lord, is union language. It's language that points us to our union with the Lord Jesus Christ. And just a few pages earlier, in Ephesians chapter 1, we find this treasure trove of encouragement around our union with Christ. Chapter 1, verse 3, God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Verse seven, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance. Verse 13, in him you also were sealed 
with the promised Holy Spirit. So you see, it's in Christ, it's in the Lord that we are blessed and chosen, redeemed, forgiven, and sealed, and, and that is what produces the kind of strength that we need for the battle that Paul is about to describe. And if we were to keep going in Ephesians 1, we actually find even more explicit language that's connected to our text today. As he prays for the church in Ephesus, Ephesians 1 and chapter 19, he recalls those prayers that the church might know the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above, verse 21, all rule and authority and power and dominion and above the name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one that is to come. And here's what that means. This means that not only are we united to a Christ who brings about all the spiritual blessings of God, but it also means that we are united to a Christ who is supremely powerful and strong. He is, he is already presently seated and ruling far above every other power and rule and dominion, and that makes the, the driving imperative of Ephesians chapter six even more compelling. Why? Well, it's because Jesus has already done the heavy lifting. He's already been exalted. We simply need to stand in the strength of his great might. It's like the story of the young boy who wanted to help his dad move some furniture around in their basement office. All the furniture had been moved and they came to the final piece of furniture, the giant oak desk far much more than the boy could manage to be sure, but he wanted to prove something to his dad and probably to himself as well. So he said, Dad, I've got this. He approached the desk, he put his hands on the sides of the desk, he took a deep breath and really went for it. I mean, just everything he had, kind of feet slipping behind him, all of his force and energy, but, but to no avail. The dad patiently stood by until his little guy became exhausted to the point of exasperation. And it was just then that he kind of quietly walked behind him, put his arms around him and placed his hands on top of his sons and very easily pushed the desk into place. Now I was thinking about this this week. We have so many sources of strength available to us. I mean, you want, a, you want an evening snack, you open your stocked refrigerator or your pantry. All right, no problem. You find yourself in need. You want to buy something. You need to buy something. It's just as simple as you, you pull out your credit card and you swipe it. Or if you're a modern human, you Venmo. I think that's what the kids do these days. But it's no problem. You just have it. It's right in your pocket. If you are having trouble at home, you just, you know, go to work or get lost in your favorite hobby. You need information. <laughs> Google, no problem. It's all right in your pocket right now. In fact, I think that, that many of us, if not most of us, lack for very little. And, and this can be dangerous for the Christian because it can create a real false sense of strength. Because the kind of strength that we need for, 
for the battle that is to be described here before us transcends all of our technology and our wealth, our education and social influence. It certainly transcends our own internal fortitude, which is what we can default to start thinking about when we hear phrases like be strong in the Lord. But the call here, brothers and sisters, is to reject these lesser forms of strength and instead to lean on the strong and everlasting arms of God. And this sets the foundation for the strategic battle plan. But, but at the risk of putting our guards down, Paul reminds us and calls us back into action of the ongoing and, and present struggle before us. And this is the second aspect of this strategic plan for spiritual warfare, and that's, that's simply to know your enemy well. Know your enemy well, right? If you're going to stand in battle, you just need to know what you're up against. And we see it here very clearly in the text. We're introduced to this enemy in verse 11. He's named the devil. And verse 12 provides some really interesting additional detail. Take a look again at verse 12. Paul says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We could make a lot of observations uh, from just this verse. I wonder if we might make just a couple. The first thing we see here is that this enemy is formidable. We're talking about the devil himself. In a supporting cast, listen to the language that Paul uses, rulers, authorities, cosmic powers. So this is a vast array of enemies and we do well to not underestimate their power. I wonder if you've heard of the 10,000 hour rule. I think it was made popular by Malcolm Gladwell, uh, but it's basically a a rule that says it takes about 10,000 hours of intense practice to master any skill. Now, over one lifetime, when you're learning to play the piano or trumpet or swing a golf club, 10,000 hours is a really, really big commitment. But when you back that out to decades, centuries even, 10,000 hours is a blip. Think about this. The devil and his minions have had millennia thousands upon thousands of years of experience. He is old. He's seen a lot. Not everything, by the way, but he truly is an ancient and formidable foe. And and this means that he and his minions are really good at what they do. Now, what is it? exactly that they do. It's another observation that this text gives us. He's certainly formidable, but he's also crafty. Back in verse 11, Paul mentions the schemes of the devil. That word schemes alludes to a kind of cunning, deceitful craft. We might even think back to Genesis chapter two when the serpent or the devil is introduced as being more crafty than any beast of the field. And most of you know how that story ended, right? Satan tempts Eve with this venomous blend of half-truths, twisting God's 
will and word, undermining it, ushering in the fall of, of humanity. And I think for us, it's really important to slow this down a little bit and linger here. C.S. Lewis, in his helpful little fictional novel, The Screwtape Letters, makes this observation. He, he says there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. And as I was thinking about our church this week, my sense is that we probably fall toward the former error. At least I do. That is failing to recognize the scope of this spiritual battle, the power and the craft of this great enemy. Listen, Jesus says in John 10 that the thief, the enemy, comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy, right? There's his agenda right there. But the way he works out his agenda is through schemes of deception and and accusation. So so here's how it works. It's not only the enemy kind of hurling this general deception like, you don't really need to be part of a local church, although that's certainly not beneath him. But in my experience, it's, it's more like, you know, you'll never really be accepted by a local church. You've got way too much baggage, way too much bad history. I mean, you remember the last time that you let somebody in? You're really just better off on your own. Do you see the nuance there? The devil is crafty, brothers and sisters. So, so don't be surprised when he leverages your story, your fears, your joys, your friends, your sin struggles, your church, and your context against you. Listen, anyone can land a lucky punch in a fight, but few people are trained in cunning strategic battle. And the devil is not some young, punk, inexperienced, wild puncher. He is a master martial artist who is thinking about his next move against your heart and against your church and your family and your life before he even makes the first one. So he is formidable and he is crafty. And the third observation that we can make just from this one verse and we could make more is that these enemies are spiritual. They're spiritual in nature, right? We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but the cosmic powers against the forces of evil in the heavenly places. The real enemy, Paul says, is spiritual in nature. In other words, there is something happening, beloved, under the surface. I'm quite happy to report that in three days, my wife Sarah and I are going to celebrate 20 years of marriage. That's 2-0. 20 years of marriage. Yeah, she deserves that. She's put up with a lot. Um, but in all sincerity, my wife really is one of God's greatest gifts to me. I love the gift of Christian marriage. Uh, but believe it or not, even after 20 years, we still have an occasional fight. You know, that might be hard to believe. Uh, thankfully, God has given us grace over the years and different tools to help us to fight better. And one of the little tools that he's given us this year, and I honestly don't even remember how it started, is that if we're in the middle of a really good tussle, one of us will stop and say, you know, 
I'm not your enemy. I'm not your enemy. And for us, it's become this kind of cool ceasefire that just jars us back to reality for a minute. It's like, wait a minute. Like, you're right, actually. Like, you're not my enemy. You're not against me in the way that I think you are. And I think this highlights a couple of interesting implications from this part of our text. The first thing it means is that your imperfect spouse, your annoying or even malicious coworker, your troubled child, your child's school, hold on, your opposing political party might not actually be your enemy. Now, I want to be careful here. I mean, saying that we don't struggle or wrestle against flesh and blood does not mean that we're not responsible for our choices. We certainly are. This is not abdicating responsibility or passing the buck or the devil made me do it kind of thinking, but it does mean that there is more happening in our interactions than meets the eye. It means that there really are spiritual unseen evils at work against your heart, against the mission of our church, and, and I wonder if you could think about the difference that might make in your life if you'd really get your arms around that. Think of the freedom it would give you. Think of the patience and humility and discernment and endurance that might produce in you if you look past the person into what's happening in the unseen world. And the second implication, and this is really big, it's not just what the enemy is like, but where the enemy operates. I mean, if you were to turn your Bibles back one or two pages, we don't have time to go into it in great detail, but you would see in the context of Ephesians 4 to 6 that Paul covers everything from Life in the church, life outside of the church with our neighbors. You've got him touching on marriage. You've got him touching on the relationship between children and their parents. You've got him touching on our modern-day relationships between employers and employees. Here's the point. You are in a spiritual battle, whether you want to be or not. And the battlefields are all of those regular, ordinary aspects of your life your home, your mind, your school, even your church. Martin Luther really did get it right when he penned the words, for still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. Which begs a very important question. How could we possibly stand against such a foe? Such a crafty adversary? Well, we've talked about the foundational strength that we have in the Lord, but I don't know about you, but sometimes it's it's hard to see that strength realized in my daily Christian life. So, So how can we come to realize that strength in the Lord? How is it actualized in our lives? And here I think we have the third and straightforward aspect of this strategic battle plan that Ephesians 6 gives us, and it's simply to, to put on the armor of God. Put it on. Take up the full armor of God. 
We saw the initial imperative uh, in verse 11 when we started, and as we come to verse 13, we get an expanded form. Verse 13, look at it with me. Therefore, so in light of your great enemy, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. Now, before we get into some of the fun details of the armor itself, I think there's a couple of important precursors that we need to realize. First of all, it's important that we remember that this is the armor of God. It's his armor, not ours. It's his. And the Bible regularly uses this kind of language to describe the Lord and his resources. Isaiah 59, for example, says that God puts on righteousness as a breastplate, a helmet of salvation upon his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. In other words, God is gracious to supply his own divine armor, his own divine resources that we might be able to stand in our spiritual battles. Otherwise, how could we stand? They must be his. The second general observation, though, is that we actually got to put it on. (laughs) I can't put it on for you. Your parents can't put it on for you. Men, your wife can't put it on for you. You must take the weapons of grace that God has provided to stand against the evil one and the schemes. And this really gets down to the essence of this passage, that the battle-ready believer stands strong in God's might by putting on God's armor. The battle-ready believer, the the battle-ready church stands strong in God's might by putting on God's armor. Now, let's take a closer look at the weaponry. First, verse 14. Stand, therefore. There it is. That's a driving imperative of this whole text. Stand, therefore, having fastened the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. I think these pieces can be understood both objectively and subjectively, right? We, we put on the truth of who God is and what God has done. We put away falsehoods. Some of us have been tolerating the lies of the evil one in our life for far too long, and it's time to put on the truth. We put on the objective, imputed righteousness of Jesus that comes purely by God's grace through faith, and subjectively, We work out the truth of God in our lives, right? And we do the deeds of righteousness that the gospel enlivens. Verse 15 moves to the shoes. And our footwear might be described something like gospel readiness. In the ancient world, certainly from which Paul is drawing this whole metaphor, the right shoes would have equipped the soldier to both stand firm in close combat, to not slip and also for long marches, and so for the Christian. The gospel and the readiness to share that gospel provides the same sense of stability and endurance. Verse 16 continues, in all circumstances, all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. The image that Paul has in mind, I'm sure, are not the kind of tiny little toy dinky shields that my 
children play with, but, but rather a large broad shield, probably some four foot long by two and a half foot wide that would cover the whole, whole person and protect the whole person from attack. Protecting the head is the helmet of salvation, verse 17. The helmet subsequently guarding the mind, which if you've been a Christian longer than five minutes, you know is one of the devil's favorite battlegrounds. And that helmet of salvation does not point us to our own performance to stand against the evil one, but rather says despite our performance, in fact, it's the performance of Jesus Christ that protects the mind. It's the salvation that comes as Ephesians 2 tells us, right? By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And the final piece of armor, verse 17, take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Here I can't help but think about Jesus' own temptation in the wilderness, right, where Satan is crafty and he is attacking the Lord Jesus and then you have the Lord defending and attacking with the sword of the spirit, the very word of God from Deuteronomy of all places. And, and this is why, friends, the word must be hidden in our hearts and quick to our lips. So when the accusations fly in, we are able to stand and say no, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No, nothing, nothing, the word says, will separate me from the love of Christ. No, in all these things, I am more than a conqueror through him who loved me. And I am standing strong in the strength of the risen Christ for whom you are no match. And with all of that armor, all of those resources, there's more. Look again at verse 18. I think we miss this, probably because there's not a specific metaphorical association, but, but Paul says in taking up the helmet and the sword, he says in verse 18, praying, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Now, this is remarkable. I mean, all this talk of warfare and ancient foes and divine weaponry and armor, Paul finishes with prayer. Why would he do that? I think it's because Paul is intending to highlight prayer as the soldier's constant and ready disposition. You know, permeates the wielding of every piece of the armor, if you will. And if you think about it, if prayer is fundamentally a posture of dependence upon God, then in this raging battle, it certainly makes sense that the soldier's disposition is also one of constant dependence upon God. And I wonder if that could be said of you. To meddle a bit more, I wonder if it could be said of us as a congregation, when people in the community are talking about Old North Church is the first thing that they think of, man, you know what? That's a church of prayer. It's a church that really lives in a constant state of dependence before the Lord. If not, I wonder if we might make that commitment this new year 
to grow in prayerfulness, to see prayer radiate through our growth groups and our Sunday school classes and our children's ministry for you personally at home with your family. Because dear ones, prayer and that disposition of prayer continually reminds us of our need for God and points us back to the source of our strength. So in a sense, we've just come full circle, right? Be strong in the Lord, in Christ. Put on the armor of God. One of the worst things we could do is think about this passage and think about the armor of God as some set of like magical trinkets that if we just kind of adorn them in the right way as if they're detached from the person of God. Could not be further from the truth. Putting on the armor of God is really in a sense, just putting on Christ. And when we prayerfully put on Christ, we're reminded that God not only provides all that we need for our battles, but that God himself joins and even leads that cosmic battle. Brian Chappell makes a helpful observation that most kingdoms will pretty much do anything to protect their king kind of the unspoken premise of the game of chess, right? If the king falls, the battle and the kingdom are lost. Another example, we'll go back to D-Day on the day of the Allied invasion of Normandy where Prime Minister Winston Churchill desperately wanted to join the fight, at the very least to observe the fight from one of the battleships. Well, then U.S. General Dwight Eisenhower was really desperate to stop him. He was afraid that Churchill could be injured, severely wounded, maybe even killed in the battle, but he could not dissuade him, and so he went over his head. Eisenhower appealed to King George VI. The king then went to Churchill and told him that if it was the prime minister's duty to stand in battle on the field, then he could only conclude that that his duty as king was to do the same. And it was at this point that Churchill backed down because he knew that he couldn't possibly place the king of England in harm's way. Brothers and sisters, this is not so for the Christian because for the Christian, we do not adorn the armor of a God who chooses to sit at a safe distance from the battle or to sit on the sidelines. No, we follow the serpent crusher of Genesis 3. We follow the great deliverer of Exodus 14, the commander of the Lord's army in Joshua 5. We follow the giant slayer of 1 Samuel 17, the fourth man in the fire in Daniel 3, the mighty fortress of Psalm 46. We follow the one who condescended his heavenly throne to wage war against death and sin and the devil. And his weapon was a bloody cross. But the the twist of the gospel, the twist of the gospel is that, that the death of Jesus Christ, our warrior king, did not result in defeat. It actually resulted in great victory. In fact, it was through the death and resurrection of Jesus Colossians 2 tells us that God in Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities, put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And what's more, the Christ who died 
and rose and commissions us is the same Christ who will one day return for the final battle. We get a picture in Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God and the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written. King of kings and Lord of lords. And until that day, friend, if you are here and have yet to put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, know that this day will come, that he will come in righteousness to judge and make war. And so my plead for you today is to consider Christ and to put him on for the first time in faith. And brothers and sisters, until that day, the exhortation is to stand, stand. Stand firm, stand battle ready, stand strong in God's might. And do that by putting on God's armor. Let's pray. Father, we are so sorry for the ways in which we have underutilized the resources that you have given us for this great battle that we, fight, that we face and fight. We pray you'll forgive us for that. We pray you, you will forgive us for overlooking the realities of the spiritual, formidable enemies that are before us. I pray, Father, that you will strengthen us today, that you will strengthen us for the battle ahead that you will help us to remember that it is you who provides all the strength and the resources that we need. May we strong, stand strong and firm in you and in the strength of your might. We pray this unto the glory of our Lord Jesus, even as he rules and reigns even now, during the days when he is placing every enemy under his feet. We pray that you will use us to glorify him in that way. For his sake we pray. Amen.